Uh, you can open up your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, that's where we're going to be for most of today. Once you find that in a moment, I'll tell you another text we're actually going to start. But that's going to be the main place, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, that we're at this morning. But while you're finding that, I've told this story in ministry before, but I wanted to tell it again because it's so fitting, uh, and you don't know this kid anyways that I'm going to talk about, so uh, that's helpful. Uh, but when I was a teenager, I don't remember all the details of this, and it's probably grown in my mind uh, over time, uh, but uh, there was this uh, boy who was a family friend, and our families would do stuff together all the time, and uh, we went to his birthday party. Uh, I forget where it was even hosted at, but some of our family got together for this birthday party and uh, my family had given bought and given him this gift and I mean we weren't extravagant people but I thought it was cool it was like one of those little spirograph things that were really uh, like new back in the day at least to me and we we gave that to him and I remember when he opened it this is at least how I remember it in my mind's eye it was this little kid significantly younger than me and I, I remember him kind of under under his breath kind of cocking his head to the side and saying, like, why did you give that to me? Uh, and I remember uh, just in my, like, teenage, self-righteous, like, judgmental heart at that time, I remember thinking, you little ungrateful brat. Like, what is wrong with you? And I was way too, like, goody two-shoes to actually say something or confront him on it. But in my head, I was just thinking all these things about him, like, what the audacity of this kid and, like, the lack of courtesy and thankfulness in his heart. Like, does he not know that my family, like, could have spent our money on other stuff and we didn't have to come here we didn't have to give you this gift and you're really gonna say why did you give this to me and to make it worse uh this is the part i think i've told before when we got ready to leave he tried to leave the present there like he didn't even want to take it with him like he, he tried to leave it he, it was that level of just rudeness and we may look, and maybe in some rightful way, we may look at a child like that, if there's, God forbid, adults like that in our life who are, are ungrateful. We may look at them, uh, we may look down on them. We may think, what is wrong with that person? Like, why would they act like that? How, what is going on in their heart? But there's been something that, that God has been convicting me of, at least, in recent weeks and recent months, is that I'm no better than he was. And in fact, I would say that I've been worse than he was. Because it's one thing to say to the Goodwin family, why did you give that to me? And to shelve it, to, to keep it uh, set aside as if we don't want it. It's a whole other thing to say that to God. And I think that I've done that in my life, over this, uh, this span of my life, and it's been regarding the gift of tongues. It's been me, in a sense, I've never had the audacity to say this directly to God, but me hearing about tongues, me reading about it in the Bible, I'm kind of in my, uh, the, the, in my heart, kind of cocking my head to the side and saying, God, why would you give that to us? And then just shelving it. Like wanting nothing to do with it, not wanting to, to see it, not, wanting, not even wanting to consider why it might be good, why it might be uh, beneficial. And perhaps you've been the same way. Now, perhaps that's been your attitude if, you, if you've stopped to think about it, that you've looked at God and said, why did you give that to us? Like, why would you give that gift? And then you just put it away. And thankfully, God is not like me and being 
angry and rude. Thankfully, God, when he hears those or anticipates those questions in our hearts, he graciously and kindly answers us. And he tells us why he's given it. He tells us what the purpose of it. He tells us why it's good, how it's to be used. And I'm thankful that we find that answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We, we have God kindly, patiently, carefully answering us on our question of why did you give that? Why that gift? Uh, because this is a gift that feels to many of us, I would say, although not all, but a lot of it's based on background. It's a gift that feels strange to many of us. It's a gift that feels uh, not intuitive. We don't see the benefit. It doesn't make sense to us. And so we're just kind of quick to write it off. Even if it's not in a judgmental way, we just kind of set it aside. And I want to acknowledge as we come into this subject this morning and read this text uh, that I know this is an issue that is stretching for many of you in the room. It's been an issue that's been stretching for me the last several years, but in a good way. And I I just want to encourage us as we have been through all these uh, last several weeks going through 1 Corinthians 12 and following to make sure that we are people who don't just assume we know the truth and assume that our natural inclinations are right, but that we submit those to God. Because that boy, when he opened that gift, he thought he was right, that this is a dumb present, this is worthless. It's actually a cool present. If he would have just like taken time to open it and at genuinely ask, why did you give that to me? And not just ask it with like a mocking tone. We could have shown him what it does and why we liked it and why we thought he would like it. And the same is true, but on a far grander scale, if we actually have the humility to ask God, why did you give it? Like, why did you give this gift? What is the point of it? I think that we may be even surprised uh, by the goodness of it, even the beauty of it, dare I say, of this gift uh, that God can give if we genuinely ask with the right heart and come to his word for answers. So we're going to mainly be in 1 Corinthians 14 today, but to understand what's going on with this gift of tongues, I want to go back near to the very beginning of the Bible. So if you want to put uh, a finger or a, a ribbon or something in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, then you can turn backwards uh, to Genesis chapter 11. So way back near the very beginning of the Bible. I want us to start there uh, because I think we've all had probably the frustrating or sometimes confusing experience of trying to interact with another human being that doesn't speak the same language as us. Uh, we, we may have had to deal with that a lot. We may not. But I think most of us have experienced that before. But the truth is that it hasn't always been that way for human beings. Uh, that, that it hasn't, we haven't always had many languages. We used to actually, uh, in the beginning, and for a while as humans, have one language. And so it's important to us as we think about this issue of tongues and languages to start back to see how did we get into this mess of like different languages and, and the confusion that sometimes can accompany it. So I want you to find Genesis 11. I'm going to read uh, the first nine verses of Genesis 11, and we'll see how we we kind of got into uh, this problem. And we're going to see here that languages or tongues are given, I would say, as a judgment of God. Languages, the expansion of languages, we're going to see as a judgment of God initially. So Genesis 11, God's given humans this command to fill the earth, you remember, back from the beginning, to fill the earth and to subdue it. But we're seeing at least a good subset of humans aren't doing that. They're not leaving. So it starts like this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We don't have time to get into a lot of details here, but I want to note a few things here. Uh, So human beings, like I said, have been told to spread out over the face of the earth, and a good chunk of them weren't doing it. You can even see in their words as they're wanting to build this city and tower, they're not wanting to spread out. They're wanting to stay together and to, to build up this city, build up this tower, to show their own greatness. So they're rejecting God and what he's commanded them to do to spread out and they're wanting to assert their own greatness to show how great they are. And God sees their unity in this rebellion. He sees that what they're uniting around isn't obedience to him, but it's in disobedience to him. And he intervenes, verse 7 says, by confusing their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. That's God doing that. God intervenes, God confuses their languages, and then verse 9 says that he spreads them over the face of the earth. So this is an act of God. It's not just something that developed in human beings over time, although languages have certainly expanded in numbers since Genesis 11. English didn't exist, I don't think, in Genesis 11. I know it didn't in Genesis 11's day. So there's been more languages that have developed, but the fact that there's more than one is a sign of God's judgment for human sin. It's not just something we should view. I know there's some of you in the room who like languages and whatnot. But at its core, at its beginning, the the fact that there's many languages is a judgment of God upon the human race. And God is confusing, purposefully confusing their language, creating new languages uh, and then spreading them over the face of the earth. And this is important for us to remember because we're going to see that that God is going to press this back. He's going to reverse the judgment uh, that he has laid upon human beings. And the coming of Jesus and then the expansion of the work of the Spirit afterwards, we're going to see God starts to reverse that. This very thing, this multiplying of languages that is a judgment of God is going to be used by him actually and given by him as a gift to people. This multiplying of languages is going to be eventually uh, used as a gift. And so, however many languages there were then, we know there's a lot more now. I've heard estimates there's probably like six to 7,000 languages in our world. It's fascinating, but that is a sign of God's judgment upon human sin. But God is in the business of redeeming things, right? God is in the business of turning judgments into blessings, Things that were part of the curse, redeeming them, turning them into things that actually become gifts. And so the other text I'm going to look at before we go to 1 Corinthians 14 is back in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, this will be our last stop before we come back to 1 Corinthians 14. But Acts chapter 2 is a significant uh, event in the history of the world, uh, certainly in the history of the church, but in all the history of the world. This is a significant, significant event in Acts chapter 2. Two, we're going to look at the first 
11 verses here. And so this is fast forwarding thousands of years of human history, okay? There's way more languages now. That the most important thing that's happened just before this is that Jesus has come, uh, that he entered into the world, God the Son as a human being, and that he lived a perfect life, that he was crucified in this very, outside this very city that we're going to see the Acts begin in, Jerusalem was laid in a grave. He had died as a substitute for the sins of his people. And then he had been raised from the dead. And he's gone back into heaven. And this is when we pick up the story then because he's told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And this is when we see that happen, when he sends the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And you'll note that one of the very first things that they do is they start to speak in languages. One of the very first things, the very first thing really that happens uh, as the Spirit comes upon these people is that they speak in new languages. They speak in languages they did not know. So I want to read the first 11 verses for you from Acts chapter 2. So Luke recorded this for us. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Side note, that's interesting given what we just read about Babel, like how they were gathering and wouldn't leave, like they were told to stay together. So they're all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. Devout men from every nation under heaven. Again, that's interesting. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We'll, we'll stop right there. But this is a fascinating story, a fascinating start to the work of the Holy Spirit. This, Jesus has told them to wait for the Spirit to be given to them. And the very first thing that happens, they're, they're together, uh, they're uh, in a house together, and it says that a sound like wind comes from heaven and fills the house. So I don't know what exactly that sounds like, but wind was the closest thing that they could describe it as. And then I don't know what this looked like, but they start not to just hear things, but they see things happen. But there's the, what they call these tongues of fire. I don't know what on earth that looks like, but that was the closest thing they could describe. These tongues of fire come down and divide, and they rest upon each of these disciples. And then what is most amazing, that would be amazing enough, but uh, we see that the Spirit fills them, and He gives them ability, verse 4 says, to speak in other tongues. And when you hear tongues, hear languages. It's the same idea. He gives them ability to speak in other languages. And we know that the languages that they started to speak were human languages, because when this crowd gathers, they hear this sound, they hear this wind, and they gather together, probably wherever these disciples have been gathered, they come to hear, what is going on? Like, what on earth is this? 
And they say that they hear them. All these people who, interestingly, are gathered from all the known world, uh, they're in Jerusalem that time. Remember, God had scattered them, and now at least for this festival and others, they gather together the nations of the world. And they come and they hear all those, uh, those ethnic names and locations that you saw there. They're all hearing in their own native language these disciples declaring what they call the mighty works of God. They're hearing them in their own language. They're speaking them in those languages. And they're not languages that they would have known otherwise. It was a gift of the Holy Spirit for them to be able to speak in those languages. This is a beautiful thing when you stop and think about what is happening. That God had scattered his people, uh, human beings, in Genesis 11 all over the face of the earth. But here the multitude, verse 6 says, comes together. And God had confused, this is what is most mind-boggling to me, God at the Tower of Babel had purposefully, intentionally confused the language of human beings. And here when the Holy Spirit comes, you see God giving a supernatural ability to actually now communicate again. And not just uh, for kicks, but to communicate the good news of Jesus to declare what had just happened there in Jerusalem. The reason that God is gathering these people together and using this gift of language that he's given to these disciples is so that what happens in verse 14 and following can actually happen. Not just that they're impressed with these disciples who can now speak these other languages, but so that they can be impressed with the Jesus that they're speaking about. Because Peter gets up when this multitude is gathered and he tells them clear as day how they have crucified the Messiah that had been sent for them. And how he had died in their place and been raised from the dead and how they can have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. They can have the Holy Spirit himself if they will repent and believe the good news of Jesus. This is a beautiful thing that God is reversing or at least starting to reverse in part that, that judgment, that part of the curse that he has impressed upon human beings. At least here in Jerusalem, as the Holy Spirit comes, he's starting instead of confusing, he's starting to give understanding. And he's using language to do it. He's using language and supernatural work in this domain of language to make the gospel known, to gain hearers for the sake of the gospel. We see in the, the book of Acts, you see, and we, we could, I hope that in time that we'll be able to do some more teaching and classes and, and sessions about this gift of the Holy Spirit. I know we've had some extended time where we've talked about the gift of prophecy, but we don't want to emphasize that gift to the neglect of others. So there'll be other times that we get to teach on this subject of tongues. But you, see, you do see the gift of tongues given a few other times in the book of Acts. Uh, you can look them up later if you'd like to, like in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19. Uh, and you see that even there, though, that tongues start to be used in different ways. Uh, one is to confirm uh, that Gentiles are believing. Uh, that's uh, Acts chapter 10. It's to confirm that Gentiles are believing. So Jews hear them speaking in these tongues, and it's confirming to them that the Holy Spirit is working in them just as he's worked among us. Uh, that, that they are not outside of the grace of God. And you, you see it used even differently in Acts chapter 19. But I am grateful that we have uh, not just records of what happened to other people and, and just story, of, that's true story of what happened to them, but we have the book of 1 Corinthians. 
We have chapter 14 in the book of 1 Corinthians where there is actual instruction and description and guidance, explanation given to a church and to the Christians that comprise it about what this gift was to look like ongoingly. Like how it would typically at least be used in the life of the church, in the life of God's people. Um, Because I I would argue that what you see happen in the book of Acts in many ways is uh, not to be replicated in the churches. We don't have Pentecost happening every Sunday. In some sense, they're a unique event. The Spirit can still give the gift of languages the way he gave in Acts 2. But what we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 14 seems to be a very different gift of tongues. Uh, the, the, the description of it, the commands about it seems to be very different, but no less real and powerful working of the Spirit than what we saw in Acts chapter 2. And so I want to read for you and with you First uh, Corinthians chapter 14. And there's going to be a long text, I'll tell you that up front, uh, the reading of it at least. First Corinthians chapter 14. We started looking at this chapter last week about the gift of prophecy, and we talked about how uh, Paul kind of ties those things together, uh, the the gifts of prophecy and tongues. He's comparing and contrasting them, and we peeled them apart and talked about the gift of prophecy last week, and this week we're looking more in depth at the gift of tongues. And just to let you know, we're going to end at verse 25 today, and then next Sunday we'll pick up at verse 26, and we'll get to, to walk further down in this text to see some of the more practical instructions that Paul gives to this church and to the Christians uh, that comprise it. But I want you to hear just the the natural reading of verses 1 through 25, and then we'll walk back through it and see some characteristics of the gift of tongues as we see it described in the local church and the life of individual Christians as, as time would go on. Because we saw in chapter 13 that these gifts, prophecies, tongues, knowledge that they will not pass away until the perfect comes, until the return of Jesus. So we should have expectation that these gifts that were given even in the Corinthian church would be given today. So we need to be guided in understanding what they are and how to use them. So follow along with me, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 25. So you can buckle up for this and try to track along, okay? Paul says, Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people, for they are building and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, How will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. 
So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also I, I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of God. There is a lot that we can learn about the gift of tongues, and I think that we will find that it is different, significantly different from what we saw described in the book of Acts. But I want to walk back through these verses and, and share things that I think we can observe from this text about this gift of tongues, to understand what it even is, to understand why it was given, and not just uh, come with our assumptions, our, our, our presuppositions, even our bad experiences of the past, but try our best as we can to strip that away and read the word of God and how it describes this gift. So a, a couple of things that I would note, uh, and if you're a note taker, you can jot these down. The first one is this, is that these tongues, the, the gift of tongues that is described here and that uh, we believe are ongoing, are languages not understood by the hearer or the speaker. It's a very interesting thing. They're not, they're languages that are not understood by the hearer or speaker. And you might just right off the bat be thinking, what is the point of that then? Uh, and that is a good question. We will answer that. But these are languages not understood by the hearer or the speaker. We're, we're, it's made very clear in this text that the hearers aren't naturally going to understand what is being said by someone who's speaking in tongues. That's what verse 2 says explicitly, right? No one understands him. Verse 2. That sounds very different from Acts chapter 2, doesn't it? Where everybody understood. Like no one understands unless God gives this gift of interpretation. Nobody understands the person who is speaking in tongues. And that's made clear. Verses 6 through 11 use the different illustrations of like musical notes. And they, they, they use this idea of like if you play an instrument and you're, it's just like one note or you hit all the wrong notes, it's just going to be bizarre to people and they're not going to know what tune you're playing. They're not going to know what directions you're trying to give if it's out on the battlefield or something. And they're saying like when someone, Paul's comparing that to when somebody speaks in tongues, that the hearers of it, unless God intervenes, they're not going to know what they're saying. 
It's not going to make sense to them. It's not going to well up praise them. It's not going to have any effect really on them. Uh, they're not going to understand what is being said. And you see that especially like in verse 9. He even says that they utter speech that is not intelligible. He's talking about it in a hypothetical, but that's what he's describing. That when somebody prays in tongues without interpretation, it's not intelligible to the people who hear it. And I would indicate that also that I think that the part of why they're not understood by hearers is because they're not even human languages typically. I think they could be. Uh, we're not told explicitly whether they are or not. Uh, but the, very f- the reason I say it is that the very fact that there is a spiritual gift of interpretation I think implies that it's not going to be someone just speaking, I don't know what languages would have been around in their day, but somebody speaking Russian in tongues in their gathering, and then somebody who grew up in Russia, like, oh, I understand everything that they're saying. That wouldn't be a gift of the Holy Spirit. That would just be them understanding the language. But if there needs to be a gift by the Holy Spirit to even interpret or understand this, it it, it seems logical to me to say then that these languages that are being spoken are not natural human languages. They're not just ones that people in some other part of the the globe um, may understand, although I think they could be. I think that's just not what typically is happening, what Paul is describing here. So the hearers won't understand, but what is even more interesting, I think, when you read this text is that these languages speaking in tongues aren't even understood typically by the speaker, him or herself. Verse 13 implies that, doesn't it? Read that verse again. It says, Paul says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret like, does that not imply that the person who's typically speaking in tongues is usually going to lack the ability to then turn around and say, oh, this means what I just said means this, or what I just said means that, that it takes an additional gift of God, a gift, additional gift of interpretation for them to even understand what they are saying. Verse 14 furthers that. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, and he says, but my mind is unfruitful. And this seems strange to us who don't do this, who have not done this, that someone could be speaking in a language that, where their mind is unfruitful. But he says it's no less communication. They are praying with their spirit. But the clear implication of 1 Corinthians 14 is that these are languages not understood by the hearers naturally, but also not even understood intellectually unless God gives them ability to interpret by the speaker of the tongues. And this, this is hard for us to wrap our mind around, right? Because communication is hard enough uh, like when we know the language we're speaking, right? And we, we're talking to somebody who doesn't speak our language. Imagine the impossibility of it having fruitfulness with other people if you don't even know what you're saying. You don't even know what the content of it is. I think that's some of why people are just quick to say, why did you give us that, God? It makes no sense to us. Every time we talk, it's because we understand and we're trying to communicate something specific. Uh, why would you give this gift where the hearers don't understand it, but the speaker, him or herself, doesn't even understand it? That was the first thing I want you to see about tongues here in this chapter. The second one would be this, and we alluded to this last week, but these tongues, this gift of, of tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues that Paul describes here, uh, these are directed toward God. They're directed toward God. Verse 2 says that again specifically. 
says that no one who speaks in a tongue, or for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. So that's different in some sense than what we see happening in Acts chapter 2, right? Where the, the tongues that were given there were intended by the very giving of them to be heard by other people. Uh, to, to be directed towards other people. Here, he says that these tongues are speech that is directed towards God. And that makes sense in why if you go down in that paragraph, verses 13 through 17, look at some of the verbs that Paul uses to describe this experience of speaking in tongues. He doesn't just keep saying, speak in tongues, speak in tongues, speak in tongues, speak in tongues. He talks about verse 14. He says, if I pray in a tongue, My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Then in verse 15, he talks about singing praise with his spirit. Right? And in verse 16, he talks about giving thanks as he's speaking in tongues. These are things that are directed towards God. It's not giving thanks to the people in the church. It's giving thanks to God. It's not singing to the people in the church. It's singing to God. This language is given to God. And so though this language, listen to this, this gets far more stretching for us. Though it's not understood by the speaker or by the hearer, I would suggest to you based on this that it is understood by God. That, that these languages that are spoken are understood by God. They're directed towards him. They're not just unknown to everyone. They're just unknown to us humans. But they are noble to God. They are heard and understood by him. That because he's the di- one they are directed toward. The use of this gift. But you do see, though these tongues are directed towards God, there is benefit that comes to the speaker. And this is where, again, it just keeps getting harder for us to understand. I would, I would say this as a, a quality of these tongues, is that these tongues, this gift of tongues, primarily builds up the speaker of them. The, the primary beneficiary of this gift and the use of this gift is the one who is speaking, the one who is praying in these languages. You see that in verse 4 of chapter 14, right? He says that the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church and some people when they read this text verse 4 they will say see Paul doesn't want people to speak in tongues because they're selfishly just trying to build themselves up and they don't care about the church they're they're just reckless they don't even care about other people they're trying to just build themselves up how selfish like we're not supposed to be selfish as Christians but I would note to you that Read the rest of the chapter. Like Paul says that he's thankful that he prays in tongues more than all of them. He says that he, uh, that he wishes that they all would pray in tongues. Does that sound like a, a gift that he's condemning? That, he's, that he's, he's wanting to be shut down? That he's saying just has a selfish orientation to it? He's saying that as a good thing. That, that tongues can build up the speaker. They can build up the one who is praying uh, in these languages. They can build them up. How does this work? I, I think we, in some ways we cannot understand this totally. How it actually builds them up. But if you look at verse 14 again. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And so he continues then in 15. He's making this distinction between mind and spirit. 
And I, I would suggest to you that in our culture, like in Western cultures, and especially in the time we live in, like post-enlightenment and all this stuff where we have all these smarts and intellect and philosophies that we've developed, we have a very hard time acknowledging and even fathoming how someone could be built up if it's not directly through the intellect. If it's not direct, directly through facts and logic that is known by them. I, I want you to know, like he is saying, he prays not with his mind, but with his spirit. But he's saying that it, it's fruitful, that it builds him up. And he doesn't even know necessarily the content of what he's saying, but he, he is edified, he is built up. And we just are not told by God the mechanics of how that happens. But we're told it does. That even though it's a language that's unknown to hearers, it's unknown even to the speaker as they pray in these languages, they are built up. I think part of why God has, this is just me speculating, but why God has given this gift, one small part of it, is that I think it's a very humbling gift. Because the person, sometimes we, when we just operate purely in the intellectual realm, and we forget that we are spirit and that we have souls, we sometimes act that the only way I can be built up is by me studying enough. Like by me thinking enough about these things, by me doing all these right works. But the gift of tongues is one where God is saying, I'm going to build you up, but it's not going to be because you are smart. It's not going to be because you just study so much, but I'm going to build you up even as you speak to me in these languages that I give to you and that is good for you. That is a humbling thing for a person. It can be used as a prideful. We, we see in Corinth, they were using some of these gifts in prideful ways. But I think by the nature of it, it should be a humbling gift. That is making me realize that God can benefit me, not anti-reason, not anti-logic, but in other channels as well, that he can build up my heart. He can build up my soul. He can even build up my faith in Christ, my trust in him, even outside of my reason. Never contrary to it, but even aside from it. So he is saying that it can build up the speaker. He's saying he wants them all, in a sense, to receive this gift. He wants them all to speak in tongues in some capacity. And it's because he knows experientially that he has been built up by it. Another thing I would say about tongues is that these tongues, this gift of tongues, will normally be used privately, but should not be, and I'll say this, and should not be used exclusively. So it'll normally be used privately, but it should not be used exclusively, as if the only way somebody ever prays is in tongues. So undergirding this is that this idea, you see just in the fact that instructions are given, especially what we'll read next week about how to speak in tongues or when to stop speaking in tongues or who to even speak in tongues around or not, we see that this gift is controllable. That, that it's not just people just speaking uh, ecstatically as if they have no control and I, just the Holy Spirit's taken over me. I can't control this. Paul is giving instructions about when to be quiet. He's giving instructions about when and where to do these things and not. That very clearly implies that these are under the control of the person who is praying them. They are not out of control, just uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and out of control. That is not biblical. That is not a biblical idea. But Paul says that his practice, if you look at verses 18 and 19, he says in 18 that he speaks in tongues more than all of them. And this is a church that did this a lot, I think. 
And he says that he speaks in tongues more than all of them. But then he makes a distinction. He's, he's talking about how he speaks in church. And then he's implying how he speaks in private. And he's saying that there's a difference in how I do those. That they, when I am with God's people, I would rather say uh, five words that make sense with my mind that build people up than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's the same guy who says he prays in tongues more than all of them. So my question would be, where is he doing that? When is he doing that? It's apparently not when Christians are gathered typically. It's when he is privately engaged with the Lord. And that's why I say that the gift of tongues will primarily be used privately. It's something that is directed towards God. It's something that will typically be used in the privacy of relationship with the Lord. And I would say that this gift should never, though, replace prayer in a person's known heart language. Uh, if it, if it, it should never become that. It should never be uh, used in that way. Like verse 15 says that. He says, I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. Uh, like we, we should never, if we are given this gift by the spirit, should never just let that be the only way we engage with God. Like, because we can be built up by it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be built up through our mind. God forbid that. Like, we must always be people who are learning and engaging in known intellectual ways with God. So it will be normally used privately, but could uh, and should not be used exclusively. And the last one I would say is this, is that these tongues, this gift of tongues, can benefit the church if it's interpreted, but they can also confuse so they can benefit the church, but they can also confuse. So even though this gift is typically going to be used privately between a person and God, speech that's directed towards him, you do see that Paul gives allowance, he gives direction even in the text that we'll look at next week, of the potential that it could be used around other Christians. But that it needs to be within certain parameters. You see, he starts with that back early in the chapter. Like verse 5, he even plants this idea, Right? He says that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And then he doesn't put period there. He says, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So Paul has a category, even though that he, he explains it as primarily be using, used privately, he has a category where the church could actually be built up through the sharing of a tongue. Uh, that, that it could happen. And the way that would happen is if there's interpretation that's given. Not just by someone sharing a tongue that makes no sense to them or to others, but what would be beneficial to the church would be the interpretation. It would be the content and their language that they understand that could be shared then with the church. And we'll talk more about that next week. This gift of interpretation, even what we uh, would anticipate if God does give this gift, and if it ever were to be shared publicly, what that would look like. But uh, we'll share more about that next week. And we'll be glad to answer questions you have uh, this week and in the weeks ahead. Uh, but this gift can be used to benefit the church. You see at the very end of this chapter, verse 39, he says to this church, do not forbid speaking in tongues. It's a, it's a gift that can benefit the church. It can be good for the church at times to hear these things. But also, they also can be used to confuse. They, they, they can be processed, they can be used in a way that is just confusing. That's not building up of the church, but it's tearing down of the church. It's discouraging people. It's making people feel like things are strange, they're out of control, they're wild, they're not beneficial. Uh, 
But the, you see that in uh, verses 22 and following. You see that he says that tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And I acknowledge that the verses that follow after that are very thick and hard in some ways to understand. It makes me feel better when Peter wrote that some of the things that Paul says are hard to understand. I think maybe he had in mind 1 Corinthians 14, 22 and following, because uh, the logic seems kind of uh, up and down there. But he's clearly saying uh, in verse, uh, where is it, verse... 23, he's imagining this scenario where the church has come together and a bunch of people are speaking in tongues, presumably with nobody interpreting this stuff, and he imagines outsiders or unbelievers entering in and them saying that the church is out of their minds. And you can imagine that scenario. Some of you have probably walked into rooms like that before. Think these people, this is not the spirit of God that I see at work among you. This is, seems crazy, chaotic, out of control. And imagine then an unbeliever walking into that, thinking how chaotic and and strange this must be. And so Paul is not, I want you to hear this, Paul is not anti being thought of as a fool. Right? You read the beginning of this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Paul is called a fool probably more times than any of us could shake a stick at in his life. He doesn't mind being called a fool. But he will not and does not want a Christian or a church to be called foolish because they are speaking in tongues without interpretation. He's saying that must never be. That can be confusing experience to people if they walk in and just hear people speaking in languages that they don't understand and the people who are speaking them don't even seem to understand. And so the word of the cross is folly. We must not add to it by things that seem disorderly and chaotic to people. We don't want to add reason for people to not believe the good news of Jesus. So we'll talk more about that next week, about how then Paul gives instruction to curb confusion, to give orderliness in the life of a church if these gifts are given and if they're to be used in the public gathering. And and we'll talk more in depth about that next week. I want to share a few thoughts in closing before uh, we sing uh, about this gift of tongues. This gift of tongues is a gift. I'll say that. It is a good gift of God. But it is a gift. It's not just something that you can conjure up on your own. Nor should you try to just conjure up on your own. Uh, It is a gift of God, um, but like we have seen with the gift of prophecy, it's not just something that we just necessarily passively wait for and just wait for some perfect uh, situation. This gift can be prayed for. It's a good gift. It's a gift of God to his people and the individual Christians. And we ought to see it as such and not be running away from it, not be hoping that he never gives it to us, hoping that it never is given to our church. We ought to hope, believe in God's word that it is present even already in some of us, that it may be given to more of us, that it may be even given to me, and that if it is, that is a good thing. We have to to trust the Lord at his word. So this is a gift, but this gift, I would know, because this is a, a false teaching that we want to always correct and will always correct, this gift of speaking in tongues is not given to every Christian. It is not. Like you read verse... 30 of chapter 12, Paul rhetorically asked, do all speak in tongues? And the very clear answer he's anticipating is no, they don't. 
But it's not because they think it's something bad. It's because the Spirit doesn't give that gift to everyone. And so there are churches that will teach based on some things they read in the book of Acts that speaking in tongues is the sign that you're converted. It's the sign that the Holy Spirit is at work among you. And I will as strong as I can say that say that is absolutely false. That is not true. Like the, Paul is telling this church, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. That's implying there's people in this church who are Christians that don't. And he's not viewing them as unconverted or that they're in desperate need of speaking in tongues to prove their, their spiritual mettle and the presence of the Spirit with them. All of us will not ever speak in tongues. Like, we won't, but I, I would love for us to have a longing for God to build up people within our church through that gift. But this gift is not a sign of conversion and it's not a sign of maturity. There are immature but real believers who pray in tongues that God gives the spirit to, a uh, spiritual gift to. And there are very mature people, far more mature than me, who do not, that have asked for that gift and God's not given it. It's, it's not going to be given to everyone. It's not a sign of maturity. We'll talk more about this gift um, next Sunday. But I, I love, I, it's been so oddly encouraging for me to read and study and think about and pray about this gift of tongues that God gives uh, to his people in a surprising way, honestly. But I was starting to realize this week, why is it surprising to me that I would actually see this as good? I actually see this as beautiful because this is just like God to turn something that was a judgment, this multiplying of language, to turn that into a blessing, to even give more languages to his people, to be able to pray to him, to be able to thank him, to be able to worship him, even in languages that don't, aren't understood by others. He starts giving more languages, but it's as a gift of grace now, not to confuse us, not to, to condemn or to judge us, but as an act of grace that is just like God, isn't it? Because at the core of the Christian message stands the cross. And the cross is exhibit A of that, something that is a judgment of God upon sin. We see our sin and the ugliness that it, that it is and the, the judgment that it that deserves. We see that fully in the cross. It is a sign of, of scorn and of God's judgment. But it's that very cross that we look to now as a blessing as well as the most gracious, like, love-filled message that could ever be proclaimed to us. That is at the core of Christianity. It's something that was a judgment becoming a blessing. And we see this. This is like an echo of this. This gift of tongues is an echo of that, of God taking what was a judgment, the confusing of human language. That was a judgment, not an initial good gift of God. But he now turns the expansion of language into this tool that can be used by him to praise him, to thank him, to honor him uh, as our Savior and Lord. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I had joked with Marcos about possibly closing with the song, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. I thought that might be a little much today, so we're not going to uh, do that. Um, but that, that song was part of a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote, and he wrote it about a year uh, after he was spared from a bout with pleurisy. And that, that bout with pleurisy had led him to renew his faith in Christ. And it is said that part of that poem was inspired by his pastor or mentor, I believe, named Peter Bowler, who had, had said, supposedly to him, had I a thousand tongues, I would praise him with them all. 
And he, of course, meant that he, if he had additional, not necessarily languages, but if he just actually had another voice box and another tongue and vocal cords, that he would have used all of them to praise God. But I think we can know less based on today's text, say that if God or when God gives gifts of language to us, when he gives gifts to pray to him, when he gives new tongues to people, we must use them to honor him, to praise him. Even if we don't even know what's happening in our mind, we will use it to praise him, to honor him as our Savior.